1: So tell me Zoe, how did onion soup determine if a viking lived or died?
0: Well, Bertie, what would happen is when they saw a viking with a really bad wound in their torso, Ugh. the I guess you kind of want to call them like medics, but we all know that that's not the correct term. They like herbalists <laughs> or whatever, would concoct this incredibly pungent onion soup and then they'd get the hurt viking or warrior or whatever to ingest it. And what would happen is that as the soup worked its way down into the uh, bowels and the stomach, if the bowels or the stomach were perforated anyway from the wound, you could smell it. So basically, if you could smell the onion soup, it meant that you had like mortal wounds and there wasn't much point in trying to save you. But if you had that pungent soup and they couldn't smell anything, they were like, great, we can actually give you herbs and stuff and like try and make you better.
1: And also, of course, you got a bowl of onion soup. I mean,
0: if you're going to go out, you want to go out with a nice meal in your stomach, you know. And onions are amazing,
1: so it's a good meal overall. Do you think it was tasty, that onion soup?
0: I mean, onions are pretty good. I assume they were cooked for a really long time over heat because it must have been cooked over like an open fire and stuff. So the onions would caramelise and I assume they'd be mm. in this kind of broth. So like, I don't think it would taste bad. I think you could smell it from a mile off, but I think it would it would have been okay.
1: So people would smell it and then they would look at um, Hjolnir or, or whatever this person yeah. was called and go like, I'm sorry, pal.
0: I'm sorry. You absolutely stink. So we're just going to like leave you here. <laughs> but yeah, it still I think it still got you into Valhalla, though, if you died because of a battle wound. So they're probably kind of OK with it. But
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to One to One, an interview podcast series where I, Bertie, a journalist at Eurogamer talk to the brilliant people in and around the world of games. Today someone I work alongside at Eurogamer, although they're someone much more recognisable than I am. They're someone who you'll see day in day out if you follow the Eurogamer video team over on YouTube, someone who delves into the lore of games like Elden Ring, Resident Evil and God of War, and someone who always seems to be playing scary games. It's Zoe Delahunty-Light. Hi, Zoe. Welcome Hi. to the show. Hi, Bertie. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So I always like at the beginning just to peer into people's lives because I'm nosy. I'm, I'm definitely that neighbour at the window with the blinds moving. Little twitching
0: just, blinds. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, and I like seeing kind of, you know, where people work and where they record from. Um, so is this your studio area? Is this where you normally record from?
0: Calling it studio area is very kind of you but it's actually just like a little nook in my front room so i have like this it's not a bay window but like i have this little insert in my front room where like there's yeah. a light and window coming in a window and light coming in even but yeah this is where i do all of my streaming from and i just have a green screen up behind me but um not nearly as as to have a studio i wish i had a studio that'd
1: be amazing one day. And you're sitting on what looks like, for people who are listening and not not seeing this, you're sitting on a kind of, it looks like a Viking throne. It's like this fur, like, a, like a, an animal skin on the back of.
0: It's non-animal skin. I can say that. I don't support <laughs> the use of fur, but it's like this. I basically, I wear a lot of black, Bertie. I consider myself a goth. But my chair is also black, so that means that when I used to stream, I would kind of just be like a floating head in an abyss. (laughs) Which Which is great. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I kind of do like to be somewhat noticeable so people can see me as well as hear my scream. So I thought, why not chuck this fur thing over the back? And the added bonus, like you said, is it makes me look like I'm on a throne, so what's not to like?
1: Fantastic. I feel like you need big arm side bits. Yeah, exactly. Made it. out
0: of like a dark walnut stained oak or something like right here.
1: Absolutely perfect. Yeah. So a throne next on a secret yes. Santa throne. <laughs> so, so what have I interrupted you doing today? This is kind of a glimpse into the, the, the life of, of Zoe. What, what have I interrupted?
0: Well, I was playing this amazing game called Dredge, which I mm-hmm. love at the moment. Um, so the embargo for it is next week at some point, but I've been playing it to kind of prepare myself for writing a video on it. But um, honestly, I got most of my work done for this week already, so I yesterday I finished up my latest lore video. Um, but all you interrupted me doing was just getting some good capture for Dredge, so... Didn't throw a massive banner on the works, I'm sure you'll be relieved to hear.
1: Ah, okay, so what kind of thing are you preparing for Dredge? So you're, you're writing a script, what kind of script? What so kind
0: of that's that's the whole thing. I can't really write scripts until I know what the title's going to be. It's just something I have with writing. Ah. Like, I find it really hard to to write an entire script and then come up with a title. Like, The title gives me a massive sense of direction. Mm. So I'll be playing the game and as I'm playing it, I'm trying to think of like, listicles are really easy to write because people like that they're going into video being like okay cool there are nine things so i know exactly what this video is going to give me so i'm trying to think of like an aspect of dredge that i can pull out for the title to try and hook and get people in at the moment Mm. and then when the script's written that then means i have to get capture for it and something that always happens with scripts and capture always 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 is you'll have all this amazing capture that you've done and then you'll forget that you've mentioned a really specific thing in the script that you inevitably never have footage of, so you have to go back and do it all over <laughs> again, and it is such a pain in
1: the behind. Right, because yeah. obviously, as you're mentioning, you're trying to capture relevant sections of, mm-hmm. of footage so you can, so people can watch those as you're yeah. talking. How long does it take you to kind of put together a, a script like that? Let's say a list listicle, which is a, a list article about or a list video for people who are enough. about
0: three days, assuming I've played the game enough beforehand. If okay. you're Taking into account the amount of game I need to play, it's like a week at least.
1: Right, okay, yeah. so a week at least. And that does that involve editing on the on the yes. other side? Yeah, okay. that
0: involves everything. I On a good day, I can get a video done in two days if I'm not disturbed and if I'm completely like in the flow of writing and editing. But on those days when it's a bit harder to write and you've got this fiddly bit of capture to get and you've also got to do some extra VO, like it can take three or four days to make a video just because there's so much like flotsam and jetsam around that you need <laughs> to do to make sure it's right. It's quite a
1: lot of time, isn't it? I don't think people realise that when often when they're seeing the videos on YouTube as they're scrolling through. I don't think they realise that there's a, a chunky time investment. Yeah, making
0: them. I consider myself a very efficient person and there's ways that I've come up with that I make the process a lot quicker for myself, which is very helpful. But I think people do definitely forget that not only are we essentially writing an article on this game, we then also have to voice it, we then have to find relevant capture that we have to get ourselves, no one gets it for us. We then have to edit that all together in a way that makes you engaged in the video. Like it's basically like I mean you're a writer, Bertie. Imagine if you finished your article and you knew you were only one third of the way done. Like <laughs> that just that feeling I'd quit, yeah. sorry. It'd exactly. be too
1: much.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well. Luckily I really like editing, so it's fine. But yeah, once you finish I do think the script is the hardest thing to write though, because I get quite bad writer's block sometimes
1: mm, if you don't feeling. have a
0: script you're not getting a video so you really need to push through to get that script done
1: yeah which can be helpful um, when you know you have to push through because it can help alleviate blockages but it's also yeah. really crushes your head a little bit
0: I always like save issues I have for my future self so like, if I can't get a wow. script written I'm like well I know I'm going to get it written on time so that's just a problem for my future self to deal with and wow. then my future self is like, oh my God, I'm under so much pressure. And under pressure, I really tend to thrive. So I'm like, oh my God, like I'm completely in the zone now because I literally have to be to get a video done. But it doesn't happen all the time. But when it does, I know I can depend on my future self. And she probably hates me for saying that.
1: <laughs> That's a great idea. Um, mm-hmm. I find sometimes, yeah, being in a rush helps produce some of the best things. Yeah. Often when you think you have a lot of time, you actually just make problems for yourself. Mm-hmm. For sure. In the long run. So... We opened with us talking about onions, you talking about onion soup. Mm -hmm. Now, you know some interesting stuff about gruesome things, as we found out with that little story. And there's a whole load of this stuff on your TikTok, uh, Mm -hmm. if anyone's following you. I I learned about people being, this is going to sound gruesome, because it is, people being soaked in honey and and sort of eating honey so that they could be eaten by other people after they'd. Died. i learned about joan of arc being burnt at the stake three times three times so it's, like, it's just like to make sure it's like triple cooked chips. it's it's, it's not <laughs> like triple cooked chips. Um, i wonder and, if she
0: was tasted just as succulent although i guess no one ate her so we never know sadly but because yeah. she
1: hadn't been eating honey and exactly honey. yeah and I learned about Alexander the Great's body not composing for days. So people were like, this guy's a saint. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's pay. There's loads, of, you know, all very cheery stuff to be talking about <laughs> on a Friday morning. Absolutely. Uh, as we are. Um Where does all this information come from?
0: Um, that's a great question, Bertie. Like, I read a lot of books about like death and decomposition, um, and the way humanity's dealt with death for centuries just because i find it an incredibly interesting topic like there are these things called body farms where they just Mm. study how bodies decompose which helps with like missing persons and identifying bodies and stuff and i cannot tell you how much i want to visit a body farm it's just because it's like it's this bit of our essential human existence that Mm. unless you are unfortunate and you like find a body or something you never really get to see and i think the big thing is that like unless you're a literal murderer you never get the choice to see it it's never like an option that's presented to us so i've always been really interested in like what happens to the body after death how different cultures deal with death but like mm. i read a lot of books by like mortuary assistants a lot of books by doctors like by um historians and stuff just because i want to know what happens to the body and because i'm not going to go down that dark side of the internet <laughs> I, it's very hard to like actually see that kind of stuff so I just also like, sometimes I'm just curious, like I just Google like, you know, about the plague and I'll read the entire Wikipedia page and then like Mm. go down a rabbit hole of like all the things that's cited and stuff. Or
1: a rat hole.
0: A rat hole, yeah, more likely. But it's just, it's hard saying where any one thing comes from because I just find something interesting and then I'll remember later and be like, this is a fun fact to tell people on the internet.
1: Yeah, right. I got an inkling of this um, when I think I'd watched you play The Mortuary Assistant, which is a game that came out. Uh, last year uh, where you play a mortuary assistant but there's some demonic stuff going on as well it's it's really good I really liked it and I thought oh it's great and I'll play it and I remember talking to you about this and we had this conversation that kind of suddenly got a lot broader and a lot deeper about the sort of dignity of of being a a mortuary assistant Um, Mm -hmm. and you know preparing people um, for death and I got an inkling then into you know the way you think about things and it's it's interesting because death is a huge part of our obsession yeah. as human beings, right? We're obsessed about it, uh-huh. trying to dodge it, trying to defy it. And in the West, particularly, I think it's a bit of a taboo, right? We don't really talk about it. Whereas I think in the East, it's, it's more talked about I think, mm-hmm. generally and, and kind of, and, and celebrated. And you, you touched on some of the kind of um, reasons why, but, You're interested in it, but do you remember where this fascination kind of came from and when when it began? When you noticed it,
0: I I, so when I was younger, I was flicking TV channels and I ended up for a brief second on this vet show, (laughs) and I landed on the exact time when they cut a hamster's stomach open and all of the intestines came out, and like I only saw it for a second before I was like, oh, I don't really, I don't think I want to see that, but I. I've always remembered that one shot and I think it was that like sudden exposure to like what you're not kind of supposed to see or what our culture tells us we're not supposed to see more accurately that kind of made me like have this fascination with what it actually looks like. So like I also kind of just I really think that dead bodies deserve a lot more respect than we give them and in order to respect dead bodies you have to know about them and like it's not really fair to be like that's gross so I don't want to know about it I understand why people think that obviously but like I think from a more like empathetic side people don't stop mattering just because they're dead so like when they're dead they deserve to have that kind of like to know what's happening to them obviously you can't tell them but like I mean from a more like philosophical point of view I just feel like it's that final like sign of kindness and empathy to like take care of a dead body even though like the body doesn't care. It's more like, I just think it's like essential respect. But yeah, I think the hamster is where it all started.
1: So you saw this hamster and and, and at this point were you like, right, that's it. I'm becoming a goth.
0: Uh, Yes, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been like a fascinated, well, because I like death and stuff. I also really like the kind of stuff that, well, like witch things, occult stuff, pagan kind of celebrations, wicca. I've always been really fascinated with that just because like it makes me happy like it's mm. the equivalent of saying like pink stuff and being happy like goth stuff just makes me happy but like for a long period when I was kind of a teenager going into a young adult only recently I've kind of allowed myself to be interested in like goth culture again and like becoming a goth because I was shamed okay. out of it a lot by like my school and stuff uh. which is sad because like I just think it's really sad to make like cringe culture you know like cringe culture is dead I don't think it's fair to make people feel like call them cringy for liking certain things which is unfortunately what happened to me but i just goth stuff is just willing to deal with the death stuff it's willing to like talk about it and not even in a like sometimes people are like oh spooky death but other times people are just like i just think goth culture acknowledges death as a thing and that you don't have to kind of go through life trying to ignore it like it actively kind of embraces that darker side yeah Although even calling it a darker side of life isn't really true because it's not a darker side of life, mm. it's life. Like it's just a bit of life, you know? So
1: I mentioned that you, you play a lot of scary games or, or scarier games. Uh-huh. Do you think the two things went hand in hand? Because we're talking about a darker side, and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, I suppose there's a kind of correlation. But did that pull you towards scarier games, do you
0: think? Um, so I'm a massive scary cat, Bertie. Like, oh, I really? would not play horror games before I started at Eurogamer. Eurogamer really? is what, yeah, Eurogamer is what, like, has kind of made me better at doing scary games because I just would not play them. And if I did, I, like, in Bioshock, I was so scared I wouldn't step out of the bathysphere at oh the Oh my beginning. god, me <laughs> too! Nev- uh, yeah, I couldn't get out of it. And then when I did, I'd move, like, an inch every minute or something because I was terrified of what would come next. Super atmospheric, that, that game. was so though, good. For- I love Bioshock so much. But yeah it's only really starting at Eurogamer because my reactions to horror games are funny to watch because I'm so scared that I've not become desensitized to them but I've become a lot braver when dealing with them like Mm. knowing that a scare is coming and being okay with that instead of being like oh my god I don't know what's coming next and I think
1: there's something about I, I think there's something about the idea that people are watching you play as well that makes would make me braver to do it, whereas yeah, just playing um, on my own, I'm like, oh,
0: absolutely. So when I was younger, um I didn't have access to games consoles. So instead, I'd watch really long Let's Plays and like walkthroughs on YouTube, were like no commentary walkthroughs on YouTube. Were my first exposure to gaming and the thing. And I'd always watch the horror games, like Dead Space. I did Bioshock. I did. Um, oh god what is it the one where the guy like screams condemned criminal origins that's it (laughs) i watched a lot of that like all the horror games i'd watch because i knew number one physically couldn't play them myself number two mentally couldn't play them myself so like watching someone else did it it's like i really want to know about horror games when i was younger but i couldn't because i couldn't make myself do it but watching someone else play it was fine because it was just like a really long movie but i've always been fascinated by that stuff i like had the Silent Hill Wikipedia bookmarked, and I just read all the entries, like, over and over again. That was, like, my bedtime reading for, like, years and years and
1: years. What's the scariest game that you've played? Which game unsettled oh, you the most?
0: Resident Evil 7 was terrifying. Mm. I think it's a fantastic horror game, but that that game was, like... That's the
1: one with the house.
0: Yes. I think yeah. the first half was the most terrifying. I didn't really like the bit after the um, tanker, but I think that was the most terrifying, just because it was... it it was so sad and like kind of different like i think if pt had come out that would be the most scary but resident evil 7 is what proper like that's the scariest game i've played so far i think
1: so do you feel yourself kind of pulled towards scary games now in a way that you weren't perhaps before
0: yeah definitely i feel more like the reason i think i really like scary games is because there's so much if they're good scary games there's so much more going on in them like Mm. i always think the stories of horror games have a capacity to be so much more interesting than games that aren't horror because they're willing to deal with like uncomfortable subjects like um until it kind of went off the rails and i didn't like it i thought um outlast the first one was really interesting because it actually dealt with like it had that concept of you would have npcs around who were um in the asylum but they wouldn't attack you they would just be doing their own thing and like in Dead Space, when you meet that guy who's just banging his head against the wall, like, that kind of horror that was willing to be like, not everything out here is to get you and we can scare you in more ways than just having something trying to kill you. Like, mm. I think when people try to come up for reasons with that existing in any kind of media, their explanations for it in the story are so interesting because they're then allowed to be like, okay, what terrible thing happened that I'm allowed to talk about now because it caused this ripple effect? It's, um, yeah.
1: So we mentioned some of the videos you do and you know a lot of the reading you do and i can hear it kind of in the way that you're speaking there's this your mind is seems to be kind of looking for an explanation you know mm-hmm. wanting to find deeper things is this what you think your where you think your fascination o- of over law comes from perhaps, yeah definitely this? Okay.
0: I've like I've always loved it's why I love Wikipedia and specifically Wikipedia for video games, because there's always someone who's like typed up every single text note, every (laughs) single dialogue, every single little thing you can find in the game, it's always on there. So when I'm trying to find explanations for things, it rewards you for being that like anal about it as I am, or like finding this one bit of loot that's dropped by this enemy that you'd never see anywhere else in the game. But it's definitely where my interest in lore comes from because I love being able to like look at the bigger picture and then zoom into like incredibly specific details like item descriptions and then to be like, oh, that makes sense why this now happened because of this tiny thing. And I think it's one of the rare things where like there are so many different types of people who play games, but for the ones who just like the experience, I think it can be really cool for them to then go on youtube or whatever and see a lore video and be like Uh, oh yeah i'd love to know more about this like monster that beat my ass five times (laughs) you know like and i think especially with from soft games they really do like they encourage that kind of curiosity in their players like they just don't tell you stuff so you do have to really work to find it but yeah it's why i really like um i'm really interested in true crime as well because trying to find the answers and trying to find again it goes back to the death stuff like it's just trying to find answers and like clarification and stuff like that
1: yeah um i'm a big true crime fan as well we've been talking a little bit about podcasts and things i'm just i'm I'm a sucker for them i especially love the they always start with well not always but a lot of them start with something gruesome happening right Mm -hmm. which is what kicks it off but it's the process after that that fascinates me it's the process of digging into it and unraveling it and Mm -hmm. and hopefully coming to a new conclusion but talking of true crime i noticed actually you started briefly a true crime series on youtube um about um I've got it written down. Oh, who put Bella in the Witch Elm? Yeah.
0: What's Yeah. That? I, oh my god. I actually have another video coming up on that channel that I've been oh. working on for like a year with research for it. But um it's with the stuff on my personal channel, I only want to cover like who put Bella in the Witch Elm, true crime from before 1950 because oh, wow. Okay. the the reporting on crime before 1950 is so different from what we see nowadays like in some respects it's the same like the sensationalism but there's not that glorification of the serial killer or the killer afterwards unlike i mean jack the ripper is the obvious exception mm. but i really want to dive into the stories of these like women who have been killed and then like massively forgotten it's really really sad but with but bella and the witch helm i've always like known about it because i mean just that phrase and knowing it was on like a plinth is like that's like real life horror that's really like folk horror stuff and then, like, the more you dig into it and the more you investigate it, you just find all these things that were done kind of incorrectly. And it's so frustrating. Like, do you know Bella's body was, like, a given to the medical examiner, like, as a gift, essentially? <laughs> like, oh it's it's not... It wasn't, like, preserved. It wasn't buried. Like, it was just given to this medical examiner who then gave it to a university. And now it's lost. And it's like, these, this was a woman. Like, how can you how could you do that like it's just it's absolutely shocking
1: i love this i love the whole idea of because there's a lot going on here you go back in the past but you're you know talking about how women were dealt with back in that time as well yeah. how, how crime was dealt with also while you know unraveling an engaging story as well so this um can you say anything about this one that you've been working on and when it's? i would love to
0: tell you everything about it Bertie. so it's about the story, not the story but what happened to bridget cleary who was a woman who was set alight in her home in Ireland um, because her husband was convinced she was a fairy. Oh, my God. So it's an incredibly interesting and sad tale of this. So I I might get a bit loud here because it really makes me fucking angry. (laughs) But this incredibly independent, smart, intelligent, ambitious woman who... Was making her own way in the world. She had a feather in her hat because she owned hens. So she loved her hens. So she would always seem with like a feather in her and she'd sell eggs. And because she was this kind of independent woman, there was so much going on with her and her husband, with like because of the gender roles in the 1920s. He was obviously quite insecure about her independence and her going off to be a seamstress, which was like a massive step up for her family. Mm. So all of this kind of insecurity that he had. And then at the same time, This is when there was a lot of um, English, like, invasion of Ireland. Like, English were basically just being dicks, as per usual, with Ireland, (laughs) which is disgusting. Um, But there was a lot of kind of tumultuous stuff going on around that, and, like, in particular, the policing system. And it meant that the local Irish culture of, like, knowing about um, folk stories and folk beliefs and stuff like that was dying out. So when the husband was, like... My wife is acting weird because she was sick. This old dude, I think his name was John Dunn, he then used that opportunity to then be like, oh, well, she might, you know, be one of the Fae or something. Because they had this idea with changelings that, like, they can, they steal away the real human and they replace it with a fairy. And then, because fairies don't like fire and iron, if you burn them, the real one will come back. But because there was this massive exodus of um Irish knowledge and folk knowledge and culture, that was kind of being like talked down and like ridiculed by the English. It meant that this other guy, John Donne, was so like he he wasn't being respected basically. Like he knew all this stuff about Irish culture and like their beliefs and stuff, and he was now being treated like a idiot by people who were um like by by the English people essentially by the English. So when he found this one moment where he could like. I don't know what to phrase it, but like he was suddenly being paid attention to by this woman's husband, uh. by Bridget's husband. It was like he then took that and ran with it. Like he was suddenly the one that like knew everything about the Fae. And like it's, it all culminates in Bridget being burned alive, um which is absolutely fucking horrific. And then her husband going to a fairy mound to try and find the real her and like it's very debatable whether he actually believed she was a fairy or not or whether he was just doing this to try and cover his tracks but not only is that event itself fascinating and so sad but there's also um, because the the trial was very highly publicised both in Ireland and England there are transcripts of what exactly happened in the court so you can hear what happened not only from the murderer but from Bridget's um, dad from the woman who was nearby from their neighbours It's like an incredible, almost full picture of what happened in this tiny cottage in Ireland. But it's taken like a year of research because I've read every book on it. Like, I'm learning how to use software to like present it in a 3D kind of like visual style. So, because you can, because we know exactly what the cottage looked like. But poor Bridget Cleary. yeah that's the next thing i'm doing and i could talk about it for like hours bertie but that was fascinating i can't wait to hear
1: the whole story so so when when can i hear the whole story um
0: this year at some point i'm literally teaching myself how to use unity so i can like make a video on it so it's very involved but it's it's those kinds of stories that are so interesting though because like who knows about bridget cleary now no one everyone's focused on like ted bundy and like scott peterson and it's not fair that these Mm. women are forgotten and especially that someone who was as smart and intelligent and ambitious as Bridget Cleary was forgotten. And that the cliff notes for her story is her husband thought her was a fairy. Like she was so much, much more than her death. Um, so, yeah, I get very passionate when I talk about women being forgotten like that because it's just so unfair and not on.
1: It is unfair. And rightly mm-hmm. so. So we'll look out for that on your... Um, that's your own channel, your private... Um, My
0: YouTube channels, private I mean, channel is over there.
1: Okay, so let's... Um, Jump a second um, and let's talk a bit about your route into games um, and how you got here. Um, So let's go way back um, to little Zoe, who I imagine was a bit like Wednesday Adams.
0: Yeah, that's (laughs) fair to assume. That's very fair to assume.
1: Um, So, what did you want to be back then when you grew up? Did you have an initial sort of dream?
0: Um, I really wanted to be an architect. But okay. then I realised that that required maths, so I didn't <laughs> follow that. But you know when you're young, I always wanted to be like an author or an artist or something. But it was always something to do with like writing, because I read ferociously as a child, like all the time. I'd read like Green Penguins and stuff at the age of eight, because I was like thirsty for like more books, and I could never really get quite enough. But yeah, I started off as like an author or an artist or something, and then as I, I got older... Art-
1: the art's continued, hasn't it? Sorry to yes. interrupt because you, you still do um, drawing, you still do some artwork. In fact, uh, brief tangent, I've noticed that you have um, a shop, a digital shop, not I a do. kind of opening soon. What's what's happening there? What's that about?
0: So, House of Mug is my own brand slash shop that I'm so excited about. It's At the moment, it's going to be selling kind of some of the extras I have from my Kickstarter campaign about hard enamel pins. But I'm talking to like clothes manufacturers and stuff because I want to start designing clothes and like sell them and have my designs on them and stuff. But I think I've always kind of wanted to own a small business and the fact that it will give me a kind of creative outlet is just like the icing on the cake because I love writing. I love editing, but I also love drawing and creating. So I want to do something with that kind of hobby that I have.
1: Yeah, and I've noticed there's a, a bit of activity uh, recently around kind of promoting the shop. It, it feels like the shop is maybe opening soon. When When is yes. that happening?
0: Um, in the next couple of weeks, really. I need to send off the last of my Kickstarter orders and then it'll be open. So end of February, I think it'll be open.
1: Wow, exciting. So yeah. and what can people find there? So I, I saw something maybe about tarot cards.
0: Yes, and... so they can find postcards of my three tarot cards that I've designed, art prints, these like pouches with um a sword kind of like printed on them with some birds loads of hard enamel pins that are like witchy and neurodivergent and goth stickers um all of the all of the above oh and like tiny notebooks as well that i have Uh, find yeah
1: um you mentioned swords there i know you've got um a thing for swords i think you have a a tattoo of a sword i do
0: right here sword here and a dagger here
1: nice and then i have a lady
0: holding a sword as well very I nice i love swords
1: uh, we can see you've got a little sword on the wall just yes
0: and... uh i have leviathan over here which is an axe and i also have like three sword openers and a sword hairpin like i just love swords. <laughs> what can i say
1: fantastic okay tangent aside um yep. so um at what point do games come into your life
0: when i was in secondary school No, when I was in primary school, I used to play Harry Potter and Philosopher's Stone with my dad um, on the computer all the time. Uh, I'll just make it very clear. I think J.K. Rowling is a turf. I can't stand her. I think she's a dick and I don't like Harry Potter because of her involvement in it. But I did used to play that as a child. Yeah. And then when I was in secondary school, a friend of mine introduced me to a game called Akami and Mm -hmm. Bioshock, which kind of like started my interest in it again. And then as I grew into a teenager, I'd start watching those long form walkthroughs on YouTube about games and going on the Wikipedias and it it just kind of all like expanded and grew from there. And then when I was at university, I became the editor of the lifestyle and culture section of the university newspaper. Right. What did you do at university? uh, University of Leeds.
1: And what were you studying? English. ah And literature.
0: Yeah. Um, I started a video game column in the university newspaper because I was like, I need to Do something about this thing that I'm interested in. (laughs) And then everything just kind of blew up from there
1: in a good way. So at what point do you first make a video about games?
0: Uh, The first time I made a video about games was when I was at Games Radar. Right, so you were
1: already there and then...
0: Yeah, I, I had watched loads of videos about gaming and stuff. And I had kind of like... I always knew I wanted to know how to make videos, but I didn't know how. Like I knew that I had the ability to. So when I was at GamesRadar, I was constantly like, hey, I wanna learn about video. Hey, I wanna learn about video. And eventually uh, James Jarvis, who was the head of video there at the time, I don't know what he's doing now, but um, he eventually taught me how to use Premiere Pro. And then I got pretty good at Premiere Pro and like started to make videos for ad campaigns and about whether we get, whether we're too used to death in video games, I think was one that really blew up on the channel. But it was just through like constant persistence and stubbornness and stuff that I taught myself how to use Premiere Pro because I had such like a vivid image of what I wanted videos to be like and like what I wanted to cover because articles are great and amazing, but I've always wanted to like have visuals to match Mm -hmm. what I'm, what my writing and stuff. So the videos only really started when I was at Games Reader. I always wanted to start a YouTube channel when I was a teenager, but I was too scared. Like... Mm. Of, like, the feedback, and I was scared of being on camera. And I had, like, played some online games with my brother, and the response to my voice as a woman was never mm. great. So I always had this intense fear of being on camera and, like, putting myself out there. But once I got to Games Radar, I'd grown in confidence, and I was like, you know what? I have interesting opinions and I'm good at writing. So I'm going to make videos.
1: So, how was it when you did put yourself out there? Because that is yeah i understand why you uh... were yeah
0: yeah so i wrote this script for like the the most terrifying silent hill creatures there were and um i I didn't really play any of the games like i knew the ones i was talking about because i was obsessed with them would like watch all the boss fights and read the wikipedia pages and everything um but as a result the bosses that i picked apparently weren't from like the most beloved silent hill games which people got really pissed off about even though i was talking about the boss design So I made this video on it and I voiced it and everything. And the comments were just, like, horrible. Like, one of them Mm. was, like, they were all about how I was wrong, obviously. Then the other one said my delivery was incorrect. And then for, like, the next couple of videos, I really just did this monotone voice. I was trying Mm. to sound as, like, masculine as possible, which, looking back at it now, really sucks. I was felt... I was trying to, like, essentially, like, conceal the fact that I was a woman. Um... But then with time, like, my confidence grew and grew and grew. And once I heard my voice back on stuff, I started to notice how I was speaking and then be like, okay, well, I'm now going to start actually speaking like a someone who's re Because when you're reading scripts, you have to put so much more effort in because mm-hmm. faces communicate so much and you do not have my face. So it just has to be all through the mouth. But the first video was absolutely terrifying and really horrible. But then after that, I think I just kind of, I was just like, I got a thicker skin and I was like, fuck them, 'em, I'm done. <laughs> I'm going to say my opinions. Um, so, yeah.
1: so how do you end up at Eurogamer? Because you've been at Eurogamer for oh, it's getting on for four years now. This yeah,
0: is... a long time so how do you,
1: how do you get to Eurogamer?
0: So I first got my job at GamesRadar as an online editorial graduate, which meant I was basically like not a dog's body, but like I was like doing a bit of everything at GamesRadar which then turned into features writer, which then turned into like a video producer slash features writer and kind of went back and forth between videos and features because um, I was really good at headlines. So my features always did really well, but I wanted to do video, but they wanted me writing features because I always got them clicks, which is never a bad thing. But eventually got to the point where I was like, I'm fed up of being like torn between these two things. I just want to do video because I think I can be really good at it if I do it full time. And Johnny had just left Eurogamer, and before then I'd gone for some interviews to be on RPS's YouTube channel. Okay. Um, but it, it wasn't the right fit, so I didn't end up pursuing that. Um, but the HR guy at Gamer Network remembered me from all my interviews and from the feedback and stuff. So when the Eurogamer role came up, I messaged, well, I emailed Efa just to be like, hi, i'm zoe here's videos <laughs> i've made here's my cv like i'd love to talk to you about this role you have going um and she got back to me and she was amazing as per usual and then that kind of got the ball rolling about getting me into the office and because i could because i was so moved to, i so wanted the job i was like i can start immediately like i can i can move and like just do everything <laughs> like my parents have a house in uh, chichester so i was like i can live uh... there and like i can come and commute in I was just doing anything I could to get the job because I was like, this is what I want to do, like, completely. Um, and luckily, Efa and Ian really liked me. I mentioned, like, Toast and zombies and stuff in, like, our test Let's Play we did. And Efa was like, as soon as you said something about, like, Toast just being bred zombies, I knew you were weird enough for the team. So I was like, that's <laughs> it, great. Um, yeah, and then I started and it was, it was... It's just been incredible. Like, it's exactly you know when you find exactly what you want to do and you're like yes this is it like this fulfills me in all these different ways and i love it yeah so
1: that's lovely i love hearing people's origin stories origin uh, story. in this way so it it's been for you do you have any standout memories in that four years that's um, not quite four years but almost
0: yeah i remember There's thing there's so many memories like one of my most vivid ones is when we were doing a reaction stream to the BAFTA nominations one mm-hmm. year and I started to talk about there was this game, I think it's Concrete Genie, it might be called. Yeah. Um but it was like art in a in a city landscape and this, the main characters are being bullied. And I started to talk about it. And like before the stream I was like, oh yeah, this game looks cool, but I wasn't like oh, this game is my identity. But once I started to talk about the game and art, bullying I started to cry and I was like where has this come from like what therapy do I need <laughs> but that was just a really vivid memory because I was like it just it took me by surprise and I think it took Eva and Ian by surprise as well because they were like we've never seen her be this emotional about a game um, but apart from that my other vivid memory is we were playing Resident Evil 7 for a Halloween horror stream in like my first year or something and I had agreed to go in VR if we in Resident Evil 7 if we got to a certain amount of money and I literally couldn't move. I was so scared. Like, I was just in the headset. And, like, I think the comments could see that. I was like, I am about to shit myself. Like, I couldn't <laughs> move. I couldn't look around. My body just froze. So, yeah, that was memorable as well. I'd say those are my two most memorable moments on Eurogamer.
1: Oh, lovely. Um, <laughs> So, in those four years as well, you know, that's this is, you had done some videos before, but this <laughs> is you, you know, full-time doing videos for nearly four years what's that been like kind of working very much in the public eye like that and you know having people recognize you having a certain amount of celebrity is there a kind of pressure there because I think it's often easier to be invisible than it is
0: yeah but I've always kind of I spent so much of my life being scared about what people think of me because of various reasons like because I was a goth because I was a woman on like videos and stuff at games radar because like i didn't really say speak my mind when i was younger at all i was always kind of like a people pleaser it kind of got to the point where i was just like i don't think i care anymore and like i've grown in confidence in my own sense of self and self-worth and stuff that now that i'm in the public eye a bit more i find it freeing almost because it's like i'm confident in being myself now and i know that some of the stuff i like tweet and say like isn't isn't really ever what people quite expect from me because I think I'm really blunt so it's actually been quite liberating to see people respond to that in a positive way and although like I don't you know I I think everyone wants to be anonymous every now and again like I always love meeting people who know me in real life because it like like there's this one commenter called Claire T-Rex and when I met her in real life at Ejects, I was like, oh, my God, you're famous. Because, like, I had seen her name so often everywhere. I was like, oh, my God, it's you. Like, it was exciting for me to meet her because it was like, oh, my God. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's never been, like, a bad thing for me to get recognised in public just because I really, like, I can then talk to the person and I know what I can talk to them about and be like, oh, hey, how are you? And you always know that, like, just being like yourself with someone outside of video and like outside of YouTube, it can be a really special moment for the other person as well. So I love knowing that I'm hopefully making people happy in real yeah. life. Does that make sense?
1: It does make yeah. sense. And I I admire, because some of the things you talk about as well, like um, neurodivergency, mm-hmm. um, LGBTQIA plus rights, you know, uh, representation, um, those kind of things as well I don't know do you do you see or ever feel yourself as a spokesperson for those things or is it just a happy side effect of who you are
0: I I never think that's my like intention like I don't think I'm the person to be a voice for like like certain queer subjects because I don't have any direct experience of them so like it's like I don't feel like I have the expertise to talk about and become a spokesperson I just think the louder people are about stuff they believe in, especially when it's for people who don't have voices themselves and, like, public platforms and stuff, the more that they... It's harder for people to ignore them and for to ignore the issues that they're facing to go away and stuff. I think with, like, my autism stuff, it's... I just want to be open about who I am. Mm. Like, for a very long time, my uh, psychiatrist was like, you know, you don't have to, like people don't have to know you're autistic like if you're uncomfortable with that but when something explains who you are and how you behave and how you see the world so clearly not like holding that piece of you back it never felt right to me because it mm. was like it it's like it it's really hard to explain but it'll be like it would be like hiding the fact i'm bisexual like it just wouldn't feel right like i want to be myself and part of myself is being autistic so like if people don't like it they can get in the bed and i'm going to be honest about it <laughs> but
1: yeah <laughs> so i have to ask if you because it, what you do is a very sought after i think from young people is a, is a sought after role you know uh-huh. I, mean, I don't think partly because they don't understand i don't think all of the work that goes into it but if you have a piece of advice to young people or anyone who looks at what you do and wants to do it too if you had a piece of advice to them what would that be
0: find out what you like making and um don't try and make someone else's content and that's not being shady being like don't copy people it's being more like if you want to get a job in the industry and you want to be noticed you do have to be doing something a little bit differently mm-hmm. so it took a really long time for me to start making law videos because i was like no one's going to care like no one's going to be interested in them even though i really loved doing it and i thought it was interesting and i did do it the response was great so it's like you have to because the game space on youtube has especially become so oversaturated in order to like make people take notice of you nowadays is very different what you have to do like in contrast to what you have to do in 2012 so you do have to kind of be a little bit different and also like have enough passion for that to come across in the video also pay attention to your thumbnails your thumbnails are really important for youtube so like that is what gets people hooked in so you want to have people hooked in and then you want to reward them for watching your video so don't like do clickbait or anything just give the people what they want um and try not to like i, I it's really hard to sum up like what i tell myself if i was younger which is essential what i'm trying to frame this as but it's more just like if you don't have the confidence to do it and you're scared like i was you there's a lot. there's a lot more going on than just like i'm not confident enough to go on video like it's about your sense of self and stuff so you need to find that one thing that makes you be like i don't fucking care what other people say like i know this like inside out and i know i can talk about it like law so i'm gonna do it you know it's like armor almost like when you know stuff on the internet because god knows people like to use other <laughs> things against you
1: good advice yeah. <laughs> so we're nearly at the end, um, but before we finish, there are a few questions that I like to ask everyone. Three questions. The first of these is first game. What was the first game you played? And this can be the literal first or the first significant game in your life.
0: Um, I'm going to go with Skyrim. Really? Because Skyrim was the first game I bought. I bought it on a whim, first of all. like I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what like a first person game was i didn't know what rpg was i was just like i've seen this game on youtube like (laughs) i've seen people talking about it i've seen the adverts i'm gonna buy this on the 360 because i think it looks like it could be fun like i literally didn't know what i was going into at all and then i spent an entire summer day in day out in this one tiny room in our house with a screen that was like this big it was like 30 centimeters by 15 centimeters playing skyrim nonstop, like i would play 12 hour days go to sleep wake up play skyrim like on this tiny tv and it just completely like engulfed me and it was like you know you see that meme of like the brain explosion thing (laughs)
1: like it
0: was like that for me it was like oh my god this is what open world rpg is and it just it was by far the most influential game i've ever played because it was it was like seeing in color for the first time it was like this is what gaming is i understand why people are like so obsessed with it now
1: wow skyrim yeah fond memories of skyrim becoming a vampire lord Um, yes
0: but i was always kind of annoyed that uh you couldn't that everyone then attacked you
1: when you're a vampire
0: lord i was like just let me live and kill you but let me live
1: let me have a castle somewhere and then yeah you know let me have an
0: awesome vampire form yeah that I can't see properly because I'm in first person, which is annoying. I don't like being in third person, but yeah, <laughs> love being a vampire.
1: So the second of these questions is last game. And I think we've covered this, but what was the last game you were playing?
0: The last game I was playing was Dredge, which I'm playing at the moment. Why and it's Dredge? Amaze. It's amazing, Bertie. That's what it is. <laughs> it's a horror fishing game. So <laughs> wow. you can see trailers for it online, but you're like a little teeny tiny, like, not a ship but you know like a boat that's just fishing and there are these towns that require you to like catch you know certain amount of fish for them and like you sell fish and then with that money you can upgrade your ship and you can buy more fishing rods but every now and again you just reel up like something really weird and not Mm. quite right and like at night when night falls you get panicked and you can see some stuff in the distance that doesn't look right. And you can see these vague shapes chasing your ship around. Like, it's it's really good. Like, really good. And, like, stuff will attack your ship in the middle of the night and something slithers into your hold. Like, it's very... Oh, it's just so good. I love it so much. Like, I cannot wait for people to give it a go. But I've been playing Dredge. So, yeah, that's my That answer. sounds great. It's okay. so
1: good. The third of these questions, the last one best game or favorite game oh I know god it's a horrible question but
0: Bert, you're so mean why would you uh, ask me this
1: sorry what comes to mind when you think what best game what's my favorite game uh, there's normally the a few is, that just Ooh. i feel
0: like when you say this when people ask this question you'll say your immediate response and then that's like a response that comes from the heart and then your mm. brain will be like well it's not really that good of a game is it, it doesn't like, matter if things it's good wrong
1: with it, it doesn't matter i would if say it's
0: good. The, the first game that springs to mind is Akami because I love Akami. I don't, I replayed it recently and it it wasn't the same because it never is. But the first time I played it, I was engulfed in that game for ages and I love Akami. Um, but I'd honestly, I'd probably have to say Bioshock. Bioshock was the one game where I, there's, oh my god, that game is saturated. Like there's backstory, there's lore, there's tiny characters you can find out about. The design of the game itself, like the um I mean like the actual environments is stunning and beautiful. Mm. It was scary and sad, like the splices are such a fantastic idea that I don't think anyone's ever really topped apart from maybe Necromorphs. Like the central story in it, all the players that were fully fleshed out and realized, the concept of a city under the sea and being able to visit it after its heyday. Like Bioshock just has it all. Like it was it's one of the very rare games which I feel like I could step into and I believe in it for everything that was happening because everything was so solid. And I've read the books about Bioshock, <laughs> so you know I'm really dedicated to if I've read the actual books they've written about it. But yeah, also Fable, actually, all the Fable games. Fable 2 is my favourite one, but I love Fable. It's um, a very comfort game for me. And um, it's why I feel good about Stretch Marks because, you know, in Fable, when you get magic you get, like, these, like, marks on your face that are, like, your skin splitting.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, with
0: blue. So that looks really similar to the stretch marks I have over my body. So instead of, so now when I see my stretch marks, I'm like, ah, oh, I'm like magic from Fable. And it, like, genuinely makes me feel really good about my body. So I love
1: Fable. Exciting times with a new Fable in development, of course.
0: Yeah, please give us some news about that, Playground Games, if you're listening to this. Please yeah. tell me something about it.
1: I worry when we don't hear about it.
0: Oh, me but. too. Me too.
1: But I also it. with uh, Ken Levine's uh, new game, Judas. Uh,
0: yeah. Well. Uh, I'm not, I don't really, I have this like inherent dislike of sci-fi stuff. So it takes oh. a lot for me to get interested in it. But the very fact it's in space, I'm already like, oh my God, not space. But <laughs> I'm just being prejudicial and should give it a go.
1: <laughs> Zoe, you have been brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today.
0: Thank you for having me. It's been delightful to talk to you always
1: as Bertie. Thank you. Um, To everyone listening or watching, please drop us a lovely review if you like the show and subscribe uh, to hear more episodes. I'm Bertie. That was One to One. And I'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye for now.